in chapter 19, when Paul visited Ephesus, if you remember, he had quite an eventful stay. He stayed in Ephesus Ephesus for three whole years. And uh, whilst there, he saw a group of John the Baptist disciples. Um, They were baptized with the Holy Spirit. He established an evangelism class in town in the town hall in the, uh, the the hall of Tyrannus. He saw people give their lives to Christ. He patiently discipled individuals. He performed an exorcism. Accidentally started a riot. And barely escaped with his life. So eventful um, is an understatement. <laughs> but he really developed a bond with these Ephesians. And he had an emotional farewell with them at the beginning of chapter 20. He then left with the goal of eventually reaching Jerusalem, staying at Corinth for three months. He finally travels up one side of the Thermaic Gulf and down the other. And I think we probably have a a map up just to show you. Up one side of the Gulf and down the other. Visiting churches he planted and Believers that he led to Christ um, and or discipled. Now he's, he's once again pouring love and care into their lives as he's stopping off along the way. But he's avoiding certain areas because he knows that if he goes to certain places, it'll take him more time. We'll get back to that here in just a moment. But he's once again pouring love and care into the lives of these people. And that brings us up to date as we come to Acts chapter 20 and verse number 17. Um, here's an excerpt from Reader's Digest, and I want you're probably familiar with this story. If you're not, um, very inspirational. Tired from a full day's work, Rosa Parks boarded a Montgomery, USA bus on December 1st, 1955, and forever became one of the inspirational people who changed the world. When she refused to obey the bus driver's order, to give up her seat and move to the back of the bus so a white person could sit there, she was arrested for civil disobedience. Park's act of defiance and the Montgomery bus boycott that followed are recognized as pivotal moments in the civil rights movement in the United States of America. Now from there, we know that the likes of Martin Luther King Jr. stepped in, very influential person, wasn't he? And he was able to lead that movement in a unique and much needed way. But both, both Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr. are entirely necessary. And we're going to see that as we come through this passage. Paul, by addressing these elders, Paul is preparing the church as well. Now, every believer, and I want you to hear this. We're coming back to this a little bit later. Every believer is meant to be a leader on some level. Whether it's leading a ministry, whether it's leading a family, or whether it's leading a a friend or a loved one to Christ. At some point, because we bear the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are leading someone, something, at some point. Look at verse number 15. Paul says, we sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios. And the following day, we arrived at Samos and stayed at Tragelium. I've struggled with it again, Mandy, so no shame to you last week. The next day we came to Miletus. Now, Paul's team is working its way through the islands in the Gulf to try to get to Miletus, 
where they can disembark and continue their journey on land. So they're working their way through. They're trying. You can see they're trying to get over to the to the right back to Jerusalem. But they have to go through these areas uh, to get there. Verse 16. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So here's the question. Why did Paul purposely go around Asia and around Ephesus? Uh, in, in fact, he purposely avoided all of Asia Minor. And, uh, but the question is why? And, and again, I think we see the answer in the fact that Paul loved these churches in Asia and all around so much that he knew that if he made one stop, he's going to stay and share with them for a much longer period. See, Paul's care for them was all, it, it, he cared for them and he, he was he was completely all in on his relationship with them as the family of God. So we're seeing this more and more, even as we're going along. Additionally, he was hurrying past them because he was desperate to get to Jerusalem. As we mentioned last week and, and, and once before, Paul was taking a lump sum offering collected from all the churches he would visited uh, to, to, to give to the poor Christians at the church of Jerusalem. So he wants to go to the church of Jerusalem with this big, massive offering, one that he could have probably kept for himself. But we see the character of Paul there. He takes this big lump sum offering and he's going to give it to the poor folk. At the church of Jerusalem. He cared so much about this endeavor. Additionally, he wanted to get back for the feast of Pentecost. Now, now of course, this was originally a strict Jewish feast. But, but remember, something very important happened on the day of Pentecost. Can we remember anything? Well, the founding of the church, the sending of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And, and there's a good possibility that Pentecost had now become to the followers of Jesus a celebration of what happened in Acts chapter 2. And Paul wanted to be there for it. He loved the brethren. He loved celebrating and fellowshipping with fellow believers in Christ. Verse number 17. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when, it, when they came ashore to Miletus, needing a rest after the toil of a ship journey, as you can imagine, uh, Paul requests for the elders in Ephesus to come see him in Miletus. He knew that if he went to, Mil to, to Ephesus, he'd be there another three years. So he didn't dare go to Ephesus. But rather, when he got to Miletus, he requested the elders of the church of Ephesus to come to him. If he couldn't see the whole church, he at least wanted to see the elders. So who were these elders? And we're getting somewhere. We'll get to the bulk of the message here in just a minute. I'm laying foundation for this sermon and for sermons to come. So I hope you'll allow me a little bit of liberty in doing that. Who are these elders? Well, the Greek word presbyteros, translated here as elder, is a term that refers to a leader. Someone who leads a body or entity. It, it's, it's a term that is used interchangeably with bishop, pastor, overseer in the Bible to refer to the same office. So if someone says pastor, elder, bishop, overseer, he's talking about what Alan and I do here, hopefully. The, these elders were ordained representatives of the Ephesian congregation. And trusted with being overseers of that particular body of Christ, okay? That's why when we get to when we get to, to, to verse number 32, I'm not sure if Jacob can go there real quick and come back, but in verse number 32, um, as, as he's talking about his love for them, he also says, I'm commending you to God. And notice, to the word of his 
grace. And of course, the word of his grace is able to build us up and give us an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. But he commended them to the grace of God. And to be honest with you, that's very pastoral of Paul. He's giving them a pattern. Because as a pastor, did you know that someday as the pastor of this church, Alan and I are going to stand before God and give an account. I'm going to be honest with you, that's alarming. That's very alarming. But at the end of the day, the best that Alan and I can do is commend you to the grace of God. The grace of God. It's all about the grace of God. Anything that we hope for this church to be, anything that we hope to be as leaders, is only ever because of the grace of God. And before we move on from this uh, concept of elders, let's make a few statements to lay the foundation for this future teaching. Um, Elder refers to, we're back in verse 17 again, Jacob, if you don't mind me, sorry. Elder refers to an office, not an age. That's really important. Uh, For example, Paul says to young Pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one despise your youth. What is required is maturity and sincerity, not a certain age minimum. Second thing is this, elders is plural. Um, When relaying the account of someone holding the office of an elder or pastor in the Bible, the term elder is always used plurally. Never singularly. That might be alarming to some people, but I challenge you to do a study. When he says to Timothy, when Paul says to Timothy in 1 and 2 Timothy about the office of a bishop, he's talking about a singular office. But when he talks about someone being in that position, he never mentions them as a lone ranger. He never mentions them as a, a, a maverick doing it on their own. The Bible always refers to a team of elders, a team of pastors. I know that might be alarming to some, but it's plural, not singular in the Bible. Um, Third, elders are called by God and by the church. Elders are called by God and by the church. Even though Paul had been with him for three years, longer than he stayed anywhere else, um, it appears that these men had been independently chosen by the elders, uh, as elders by the church itself. So, of course, God leads men into the pastorate, gifting them with skills, desire, and characteristics to do so. But this is really important. The local church body itself calls its own pastors. These were not men sent from the outside, but men that had been serving among them, whose lives and testimonies were observable and commendable. The church was confident in trusting them with this responsibility, with this office. Now, that doesn't mean that there's something wrong about calling someone from the outside to come and lead. If so, then uh, what are Alan and I doing here, right? But there is some particular blessing and some holistic value on a local church basis of someone from your own rank, someone who has lived and served among you. You've seen their manner of life and you commend them to the Lord. So he calls these elders to himself in in Miletus, and he begins to recount to them his own life and ministry among them. And he calls them to minister in the same way. So he gets them there. He tells them of his love for them, as we're going to see over and over and over again. But Paul is giving them a pattern as to how to serve as a minister of Christ. Number one, we ask the question, how did Paul minister? 
Well, in verse number 19, it says that he was a humble servant, right? He was serving the Lord with humility. With, with all humility. Serving the Lord with humility. He was a humble servant. Now, I'm going to say this. A person who is in any type of ministry, a person who names the name of Jesus for a particular work, there is not a person on the planet who has any right to approach that with entitlement. No pastor should approach the pastorate with entitlement in terms of I'm better than everyone else in the congregation. No Sunday school teacher should approach the children next door and say, I'm teaching you because I'm better than you. No church member should be in the house of any other church member looking at their property, looking at their life, and look upon that person and say to themselves or to that individual, I am better than you. Entitlement belongs nowhere in the local New Testament church. And it belongs nowhere in the ministry. He was a humble servant with humility. He was a weeping servant. He says that he did so with, with many tears. With many tears. Now three things made Paul cry. He wept for the lost. In, in Romans 9 verse 2, he spoke of the, of the great heaviness and continual sorrow that he had in his heart for his lost Jewish brethren. And it, should, it should bother us as well. Friends, family, co-workers, classmates, whatever, that don't know Christ. Um, that should tug at our hearts strings. He wept over unfaithful Christians. Not in a judgmental way. But in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 4, Paul wept over the fact that disobedient Corinthians were, were not experiencing the full love of Christ in giving and receiving. He knew the pain and emptiness of not experiencing the fullness of Christ's love and he hurt for them. And he, according to verse 30 and verse 31, wept because of false teachers. Uh, look, look at verses 30 and 31. It says, also from among yourselves, men will rise up. And this happened, by the way, and Paul wept over it. They'll rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Now, here's the reality of the situation. What you do speaks so loudly, I can't hear what you say. That's the reality of the situation. No doubt about it. The practice of theology is the most important part of our theology. And what I mean by that is not that it's not hinged on our theology, but we can say whatever we want to say, but if we live contrary to that, then we undermine everything that we say that we believe. But that being said, if the theology isn't true, then we have no reason to live. If the, if the theology isn't true, then our faith is false. And Paul was so burdened about people coming along, teaching non-orthodox theology, trying to teach things that would pervert the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, his miracles, his, his perfect life, uh, the, the resurrection, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. The authenticity of his, his miracles and his resurrection. People were coming in trying to undermine these very key teachings. 
And Paul was brought to tears at the possibility of some of them hearing it and turning away from the faith and becoming apostates. In Philippians 3.18, he, it tells us of Paul's weeping for those who've turned into false teachings about Jesus. And whilst we should not be primarily led by emotions, God made us emotional beings. We were made with intellect, emotion, and will, a trinity of sorts, by God himself. And, and when touched for the right reason, emotions are beautiful expressions of love and care. Whether it's emotions of, of tears of joy, or whether it's tears of sorrow. Paul wept just like Jesus wept. Now, we talked about Stoicism a few months ago here, didn't we? As, as, Paul, as uh, Alan, Alan was teaching about Paul coming into um, Athens. And Stoicism can be um, a counterproductive thing to the life of the church. Now, I, I, never, I don't think that we should ever force emotions on ourselves. Or we should never force the tears to come or anything like that. But, but listen, British Stoicism is a hindrance to the work of the gospel in the church. Now, that sounds really, really funny coming from American. Okay? And it sounds like I'm attacking you specifically. I'm going to immediately turn around and say, American Stoicism is a hindrance to the work of the gospel in the church. Stoicism of any sort. Stoicism that would, would keep us from putting our all, of our, of our expression of our love and care into this work of the church, into the lives of our brothers and sisters. Anything that would hinder the work that God is trying to do emotionally through us is a hindrance to the work of the gospel. Again, if you're a person that just doesn't cry and you can't cry, it's all right. This is not a, a, an attack on you. But when we fight it back, constantly and we think oh, oh I've, ju I've just got a uh, stiff upper lip right grit and bear and it's okay to cry jesus wept over lazarus and here's the point there's no place for dry unexpressive christianity in the body of christ if we love christ and the church we show that we love by actions and or emotion that might not be tears but we were made to be emotive, weren't we? So Paul was a weeping servant, wasn't he? But he was also a tempted servant. He's, he mentions the trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. Trials here. Uh, we, we have the word uh, uh, purisma, which is the same word used in James 1 verse 12. It, it is a generic term that typically refers not necessarily to moral solicitation, to evil, but to trials and difficulties. And the question is, what type of trials was Paul referring to? Now, we, we, we could go on and on and on, but verses 22 and 23 are profound. And see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Can you imagine what Paul was experiencing? He says, people are telling me in every city that chains and tribulations are waiting for me. Imagine living like that. Everywhere you go, chains and tribulations are coming, brother. And Paul, as he's going about experiencing this, so often as the Holy Spirit is leading these people to say that, 
He's experiencing the temptation of turning back. But he knows that God has led him to go. It's easy, isn't it? When times get tough, to turn the other way. Give up. But Paul, knowing that a work of God was taking place in him, he presses on. With tears, but he presses on. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul details some of his afflictions. He received 39 lashings on five separate occasions. He was flogged three times, stoned once, shipwrecked three times. He was stranded at sea for a whole day, and the list goes on and on and on and on. So, so, so why did he even carry on? Why not just quit? That's a good question. But look at verse number 24. None of these things move me. None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Now, the gospel of the grace of God was something completely contrary to what was being taught and and solicited by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other uh, unbelieving Jews in the area. Um. What was being testified by them was a legalistic gospel. One where they were convincing people who were on the fence about Christianity. No, you have to keep the law and believe in Jesus. And we, we call these the, the circumcisers. So these people, part of the circumcision, they were going around and they were telling people, it's not enough to believe Jesus, you need to be circumcised too. And that's perverting the gospel. The gospel is the free grace of God. Free grace of God extended to all who transfer their trust from themselves to Jesus. That's what it is. It's free. It's the grace of God. And he was testifying and he says, none of these chains and tribulations move me. He wasn't moved by the the chains and the tribulations. Does it mean he enjoyed it? No. Does it mean that he was, every every trial he experienced, he was just on cloud nine about it? Absolutely not. He cried. But he experienced it with the grace that he was preaching about in his heart. You hear what I'm saying? He's preaching about the gospel of the grace of God. And he's extending that to people. And the only right that he has to extend that to people is that he's experienced that grace himself. He knows of the profundity of the gospel because he's experienced the grace of of God on a very personal level. In the midst of his chains and tribulations, in the midst of his weeping, he experiences the balm, the medication of the gospel applied to his soul. Paul was not swayed by persecution and hardships. He stayed the course until he ultimately finished it. Paul did not say that he counted his life uh, he did not count his life dear, by the way. When he, when he says, um, yeah, I do, nor do I count my life dear to myself, is what he says. He doesn't say that he doesn't count his life dear. Uh, and he's not saying that he doesn't have a, an element of self-love. There, you know, there's a, there's a self-love implied in the New Testament. I'm not sure if you've caught it in the, in the whole of Scripture. Um, not, not a self-service, uh, but, but there is an element of self-love. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's, there's, there's an applied self, self-love self for each and every one of us. 
But that love is last. That love is last. J-O-Y, we taught, we, we used to teach kids in Sparks that all the time. Jesus, others, yourself. That's the divine order. You're not supposed to hate yourself. You're supposed to love yourself. But that love and respect and care for yourself is never above love for others and love for Jesus. Paul did not say he did not count his life dear. Just not, not dear to himself. Our lives should be counted dear to the Lord. Our lives should be counted dear to others. What is Paul trying to communicate? Here's what Paul is trying to communicate. You are an instrument in the hand of God in the life of someone else. You, regardless of your background, regardless of your failures, regardless of the wrinkles and the warts, and I'm not pointing anyone out here, but regardless of all of the failures that you might have in your personal life, and as unworthy as you think you might be to be a tool in the hand of God, you are by the grace of God. He goes on to say that this ministry wasn't Paul's anyway. It was one that he had received from the Lord Jesus Christ. It was all of the grace of Jesus to begin with. So rain or shine, Paul was going to seek to glorify Christ in this ministry. Therefore, bonds and afflictions did not stop him. But isn't that true of each of us? Isn't that true of each of us? It is the grace of God and the grace of God alone that we can even bear the name of Jesus. So, so rain or shine, valley or mountaintop, Christ is worthy of our lives. Second question is, what did Paul teach? And we come to verse number 21, back up to verse number 21. It says, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, we come back to this again. He talks about extending the grace, the, the gospel of the grace of God to everyone. Our great message and really our only message in life is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's okay to be passionate about other things in different contexts, but the all-surpassing message that you should desire to get out to people more than any other message is the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's, here's, here's how he, he applies that message. Testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance toward God. Repentance could be defined as a change of mind that leads to a change of action. You understand that? We change our mind about something which leads to a change of action. But then there's faith. Faith and repentance always go together. And faith is the transferring of your trust from yourself to the Savior. Repentance is turning away and turning to. And faith transfers the trust from yourself, any goodness that you might have, or any faith in anything else, to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's transaction. And this is why faith and repentance go together. Everywhere Paul went, he called people to turn from their sins and turn to the Savior by faith. This was his appeal to the masses. And as we'll see later, this method produced lasting results. Actually, we'll probably skip over, over that bit because I'm, I'm just looking at the time and I'm apologizing ahead of time. Um, the, the third thing that we'll ask, the third question, just skipping over some of this. Um, who did Paul reach? I wish we could get more into this. But look at verses, verse number 21. I want you to first see that Paul was not selective, right? And we'll, we'll double down on that, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks. 
Paul was not selective. And when it comes to evangelism and sharing your faith, there's always the temptation to witness that person that looks favorable. You know, Alan and I go out um, on, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays. Uh, Monday we're in Hanley, Tuesday in Newcastle, and Wednesdays we're in Longton. Uh, 12 to 1 if you ever, ever want to join us. But as we go out and we're doing this evangelism, we're looking for people on the streets. I like to find someone on a bench somewhere and sit next to them and talk to them. Alan likes to go into a group of people and just like start a riot. No, not really. But he has a way of speaking to groups. Um, I'm looking for the individual. And there's a temptation for me as I'm going out. There's a temptation for me to say, hey, look at that guy. He's wearing a Man United top. We won yesterday, so I'm okay saying that publicly. He's wearing a Man United top, so I'll go and sit next to him. I've got some commonality with him. Or, or you know, he's, he's he, he looks this way or that way. On the other side of the spectrum, you know what? Sometimes we can see that person sitting with the with the mohawk on the bench, which I used to have, by the way. Anyways, and all the piercings and tattoos, and, and you think, I wouldn't want to sit next to them. You can see that person who's, who's transgender or whatever it is that would turn you off to that person's personality. And, and you might look at them and say, no, I don't want to speak to that person. And you know what I find? When I sit next to the person and speak to the person that I didn't feel commonality with, the Holy Spirit moves in and speaks. And that person is gripped by the gospel message. I'm just trying to get you to see, Paul was not selective. There's no place for prejudice in the church of God, and there's no place for prejudice in evangelism. And, and he said, here's how I, here's how I taught. Um, his evangelical methods in verse number 20, he talks about teaching publicly and from house to house. Now, this is significant because he did it publicly, he did it on the streets, right? But he's also going into houses. And, and sitting with people, inviting people into his house and going into people's house. And, and here's, here's the, the, the mind-blowing thing about this. Once, Paul went house to house, hauling Christians off to prison. But now, he's going house to house, preaching the grace of the gospel of Christ. Now, these men that he's speaking to, these elders, these men had come to Christ through Paul's ministry. He says, I kept back nothing that was profitable from you, but have shown you. So, so he, he poured his life into these men. He poured life into these men. He'd invested so much time and effort and love and care into them. And remember this, discipleship is not just a curriculum. Discipleship's not a curriculum. It's not just a transfer of information. It's a transfer of life. That's what discipleship is. We think, oh, let's do discipleship. We'll go through this little course here together. And at the end of it, congratulations. You're a disciple of Christ. That's the way it works. Discipleship is not a transfer of just theological information. Discipleship is a transfer of life. And he poured his life into these men. He loved them, and apparently they loved him as well. Look at verse 25. And indeed, now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Think about this. He's giving them a heads up, isn't he? We're not going to meet again. Mick, Mick preached this a little bit before reading a minute ago. You're not going to see me again. That's what Paul's saying to him. 
This is the last time on this side of eternity that we'll ever see each other ever again. And he goes on in verse 35, uh, down to verse 38. It says, and I've shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. He's telling them, he's giving them a heads up. I've shown you how to do what you've been called to do. You've been with me. You've seen my manner of life. You have to support the weak. He says that. What does that imply? It implies this. That's exactly what Paul did for them. They were weak. And Paul came along and offered support to them. And remember the words of our of the Lord Jesus. He said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And there's something very true about that, isn't there? There's a particular spiritual blessing about giving to someone. There's a particular blessing about the joy of knowing that you provided for someone's need in some type of way by the glory of, for the glory of God. Verse 36, it says, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them Oh, so imagine this. I'm never going to see you again. And I'm calling you to do to others what I've done for you. And they kneel down and they pray. And how did they respond? And the question, the question is, has any of this stuck? Has any of what Paul has poured into their life, the life and the care and the love and the tears, has any of it stuck with these men? Look at verse 37. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied to the ship, accompanied him to the ship. Did it stick? I think it did. Here's a question. If I knew that I would never see you again, how would I react? And that tells me how much I love you and how much I don't. And they loved Paul. Paul loved them. They had shared life together. They had poured life into one another's context, into one another's hearts, into one another's minds. They'd been pointing each other to the gospel over and over and over again. And now he wasn't going to be there and their hearts were broken. That's gospel community. That's what we're talking about. Loving one another. Pouring life into each other. So I want to leave you with some principles. I know you're thinking, you've been talking about a bunch of pastors all morning. But I want to give you some principles for the servants of the Lord, okay? Things that we can take away from this. First thing I would say is this. Be visible and accessible. Be visible and accessible. Because that's what Paul was. Paul wasn't aloof, was he? He wasn't removed from everybody's life. He was visible and he was accessible. Listen, we like the comfort of our own homes, don't we? We like Netflix and chill sometimes. Sometimes a little bit too much. We like the comfort of our own homes. We like sometimes to be removed. And I'm going to be honest with you. Left to my natural state. I'd be in this door and out this door on Sunday morning. I don't. It's not something that comes naturally to me. But there's something. There's a compulsion that God has put in me. That I know runs counterintuitive to the flesh. That says. 
love your brothers and sisters. Point someone to Jesus today, whether that's an unbeliever or a believer. Bring someone into a greater understanding of the gospel today. Let someone know that they are loved in Jesus Christ today. And that doesn't come naturally. And I can't do that. I can't obey the commands of 75% of Scripture if I'm not accessible and visible. Now, what, what does that take? It takes humility, right? It takes humility. Um, I, I, I have to understand, right? I have to be humble. And I'm humbled by the fact that I know I'm weak. And we should live in a community of people humbled by our own weaknesses. Knowing that, that we're weak in more ways than we want to admit. Confessing those weaknesses. Praying with one another for those weaknesses. But I need to be humbled by that. I need to be humbled by the presence of Jesus. Knowing that I cannot be entitled when he deserves all of the glory. I want to take no glory for myself in this situation with you. In my interaction with you, in my preaching of the gospel, in the sharing of my testimony. I want no glory because I deserve none of it. Jesus deserves all the glory. But also listen, live like receivers of grace. Live like you're a receiver of grace. Because really on the grand scheme of things, that's it's kind of all you are. Receiver of grace. Every one of us has received a ministry from the Lord Jesus. No one is entitled to anything above the next person. Now, all of this sounds good in theory, doesn't it? And I'm telling you, that you have a ministry in this church. And you might not be the pastor and God willing, someday we'll expand our, our pastoral team even more as the church continues to grow. I would be so happy for that to happen. I would be happy to see uh, the deacons to expand as well as the church grows. And have more and more leaders in the church contributing in that specific way. But listen, you may not be a pastor. Your ministry may not be pastor, deacon, Sunday school teacher. But you have a ministry in this church. You have a part and a contribution to this church. In the lives of everyone else, but in the evangelistic efforts, in the efforts of discipleship, all of us have a ministry. You may be feeling uncertain about it, but I mentioned David Livingstone last week, if you remember. His heart was buried in Africa. But Livingstone spent his whole life serving and, and, and sharing the gospel. And when he would teach from Matthew 28, where Jesus said, I am with you always. You know what he said? It is the word of a gentleman. He said, I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the world, the end of the age. He said, that's the word of a gentleman. And we can trust that as we go, and as we serve, and as we step outside of our comfort zones, that Jesus Christ, will be right there with us, empowering us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege of being ministers of Christ. Thank you for the added blessing of being a pastor. Um, thank you so much for entrusting me with the gospel.
for pouring the gospel into my life. Thank you for every single person in this room. Thank you for the gospel that's been poured onto their lives as well. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be more emotive in our relationship with one another in terms of being filled with the Spirit and investing in one of those lives, invested in one of those lives, to, to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice. Helps to be more invested in this gospel effort, sharing the gospel with those who don't know or those who need to hear again. Helps to be living the gospel in a way that would reinforce everything that is being said, Lord. We, 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 want, we want people to know us as, as those who don't just say things, but are experiencing a life, an actual life. It's a change of life. And thank you so much that we can take the gospel with faith and assurance in our hearts, knowing that it's not just something to, to say, but something to live and experience. So I commit this congregation to you. I commit myself to you. Commit Alan to you as well. Pray that you give him safety to travel back tonight. We just want to commit ourselves to you afresh. You deserve it all. And so we want to surrender to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh,